2: Well, hello, and welcome back to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and once again, I am thrilled that you are with us. Um, We're going to have a really interesting conversation. I love talking to youth and young adults, and they are leading the way to change and giving us so much hope for the future. But before I introduce our guest, I always like to um, talk to people. And just welcome them to our show. For those of you that are new, Alzheimer Speaks is really about being inclusive. We like to hear from everybody at all ages and stages around the world. So maybe, just maybe, you will be our next guest. Please feel free to reach out to me at radio at alzheimerspeaks.com. My own personal experience is my mom lived with dementia for 30 years, and I know we are better together. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that one. So we are going to, um, like I said, have a great conversation, but I want to give a couple of shout outs. One is um, to volunteering for seniors on November 11th, and you're all welcome to attend this I'll be doing a webinar with them about living with dementia, and we're open to taking your questions. Um, And then on December 8th, I have another public event coming up that is sponsored by Artist Senior Living of Woodbury, and that one actually is going to be in person, and we're going to be talking about family gatherings, um, events, and travel, and How do you make these special times not so difficult? How do you get back to the joy where everyone can find peace and happiness and and build memories? So um, you can check out all of our free resources on alzheimerspeaks.com, and then just go to our free educational resource center, and there you'll see a bunch of icons. You can just click on any of them. One of them is Dementia Map and if you haven't uh, checked that out please do so we have 150 categories that people can search There's also a calendar of events, there's a glossary of terms, some wonderful articles in the blog, just so much there. So, um, you know, you can either access that through AlzheimerSpeaks.com or go directly to DementiaMap.com. We are going to hear from the Adaptive Equipment and Caregiving Corner, and then we're going to be right back with our guest to talk about
1: I don't recommend this walker for all of my clients, but I do recommend this walker for those caregivers looking for an easier, safer option with transfers. I would also encourage other therapists to add this walker to their toolbox. It's kind of like having my own mobile parallel bars for the client to pull up on. Whether it's a family caregiver at home helping a loved one with Parkinson's or dementia, CNAs in a long-term care facility assisting their patients or therapists adapting to client and caregiver specific needs, we now have a very safe and effective option to offer in the footbar walker. Check this product out at thefootbarwalker.com. That's it for today from Adaptive Equipment and Caregiving Corner. Have a great day and don't forget, if you can't do it, adapt it. And if you
2: haven't gone to their site, please do so. They are a wonderful resource. I don't care if you are having a knee or a hip replacement, or if you are going through transition and need help with toileting or eating. Um, they they review so many different types of gadgets. You will be amazed at what out there is, uh, or what is available out there to help you. So again, today I'm finally going to introduce you to our guest. We are going to be talking about uh, the Youth Movement Against Alzheimer's, Empowering Generations for for Change. And I am so thrilled to have with us the chairman and founder of the Youth Movement Against uh, Alzheimer's, known as YMAA. And um Nihal is... I'm sorry, I'm going, to, I'm going to screw up his name, and I promised him I wasn't going to, and here I go. Mihal Sus DeBay is with us, and he is just an absolutely exceptional leader. Um, their group uh, really puts forth um, college and high school students as advocates, as researchers, and they help provide care for those battling dementia. He is also a published researcher, and his primary interest is dementia and machine learning. Nihal is currently um, at the University of Medicine and Health Sciences, and he is a member of the Duke Global Neurosurgery and uh, Neurology uh, team there, and he holds his master's. In public health from George Washington University, and he also has a BA in computer science. So, I looked over his his resume, and it is pages long. What he has accomplished, so I can't even um, I can't even begin to tell you the difference this man is making already and I'm really excited to see what he what he does in the future and watching his career. So welcome Nihal. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Um excited, excited.
2: And please say your last name correctly because I totally, totally crucified it and, <laughs> and that was my fault. I got a I'll be honest, I got a kind of an a, a alarming, kind of urgent text all of a sudden and it threw me for a loop and I shouldn't have <laughs> let it. But go ahead and, and pronounce your name correctly. Um so
0: um absolutely we can... no worries at all. It's a challenging one. Uh it it's not the name.
2: Okay, wonderful, and I think it's actually easier to pronounce than what it looks, and um, and that was one of uh, one of the excuses that I will go by there. <laughs> so again, thanks for coming today. I always like to ask my guests if they've been personally touched by dementia in their own family or circle of friends. So, do you mind sharing that with us?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So both my grandmothers um, had a uh, had dementia. One of them was actually diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Uh, The other one uh, never got a uh, true diagnosis of the cause of the dementia. But uh, the one that did have Alzheimer's disease uh, did uh, progress uh, for about 15 years after the diagnosis. So um, she had a bit of a longer uh, longer journey with it. Um, So, yeah, it's, it's, it's on both sides of my family.
2: Okay, okay. I know with, with my family, I'm 63, so I know my mom had it for sure. My mom always mentioned that my grandma had it, but the rest of us all thought it was, um, you know, the morphine from the cancer um, where she was having difficulty because there was, you know, no one really talked about it back then. So on my side, mm-hmm. we really don't. We really don't know, but I I am amazed at the family history when I go out speaking that, you know, people will talk about So. It is just something that hits so, so, so many of us. And it's an important conversation that we bring to the forefront and, and be able to do that in a comfortable fashion. So people feel okay entering um, the conversation. Why don't we talk about the, the youth movement against Alzheimer's? How the heck did it get started? I always find these as such fascinating stories.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um with uh, my interest already being in dementia, having it um, been in my family, I'd already been doing uh, some research during my undergraduate years on neurodegeneration. <clears throat> One of the things that I did to sort of complement that uh, was uh, was volunteer uh, locally to create a congressional uh, district maps on the prevalence of Alzheimer's and to help uh, create public policy um, public policy map Um, and so during one of the national conferences uh, that I attended uh, this was at the time for the Alzheimer's Association um, I noticed that they had like a younger like under 40 section Um, so first of all in my mind as a 20 year old I was like that is not what I expected for the the younger people section Um, that's not
2: young yeah
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah Um, I can I, I can
2: appreciate that very much yeah
0: um, and even in that section, uh, in the conference, there was like 1,100 people and only about 40 of them were at, that, at the session. And so I was shocked at the sort of uh, demographic that was there. Uh, and especially having worked on some of these public policy efforts, I understood how challenging this is, not just for older adults who are personally affected by it, Uh, but also because of the uh, economic bear down that it has on entireties of individual families, uh, but also on the overall cost of our healthcare system. So I went back um, after that conference, I was like, oh, you know, there's probably already, you know, an organization sort of like the Colleges Against Cancer um, for this disease. And when I looked at uh, the top ranking 150 colleges, uh, four of them had an active organization around dementia. Uh, And so, at the time, that was very shocking to me. And so, I gathered up a few of my friends uh, who I knew uh, were very passionate about healthcare reform uh, and addressing challenging healthcare topics. And we uh, started a group. um, And at the same time, we essentially met peers of peers who would be interested in starting chapters elsewhere. And It really began as a grassroots movement to get college and high school students to uh, start advocating for this disease and start looking at it not just as a disease that affects older adults, but also as the greatest public health crisis of of the upcoming several decades.
2: Wow. You know, I'm still giggling at that um, when you talked about up over 40 or under 40 group and and appreciate so much that as a 20 year old, 40s old, you know. And, <laughs> and and again, when I think about the need for for us to be more inclusive, I mean even looking at, you know, under 40, I mean that was that was a huge step right there, you know, um in, in terms of pulling in the loop, but we have so we have such a wide net there's no reason every person at every age can't be involved i mean there are things to contribute um at all ages i see intergenerational interaction with you know kindergartners or preschoolers you know with our elders and you know there's so much compassion and and fun that can be had um and learned during this process so kudos for you for for moving that needle you know, further on down and including more, um, more uh, younger people because you know every generation. And I don't know if you believe this, but I I I've, I've seen this. Um, and granted, there's some overlap, but every generation approach, approaches problem solving a little bit different. And and I think that's a good thing. What are your thoughts on that?
0: I I I think it is definitely. A huge area where we are sort of undertaking advantage of the sort of natural course of intergenerational relationships. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, In several other cultures, uh, there is sort of like a structural connection between uh, grandparents and grandkids. Um, You know, older adults, retirees, do have a natural role to play in sort of uh, grow, in sort of building up the next generation, which I don't think is as integrated our culture. Uh, But I also think that. Uh, We are uh, underplaying the role that younger uh, individuals have already in dementia. And what I mean by that is a large percentage of them are currently family caregivers. Uh, There was a beautiful study that was done by uh, University of Southern California in partnership with Us Against Alzheimer's. Um, And uh, this was published, I want to say, about three years ago, and they found that 25% of family caregivers... Um, or were between the ages of 18 and 34, um, millennials were defined by that age group at that time, uh, which essentially means we're missing large swaths of people who are even under 18 uh, that are providing care. And so uh, this is really not at all a disease of older adults as of 2022. Uh, it's a generational disease in terms of who it uh, directly impacts.
2: Oh, I so agree with you. I used to go into the high schools and and speak. And um, when I would talk, I would ask, you know, how many many of you are caring for a loved one? And it was shocking because it was something no one really talked about. But I would say a third of the class, typically of every class that I went in and talked to, um, had somebody in their family that they were caring for. But What was really interesting, and I'd love your opinion on this, was they weren't, they were excluded on what was really going on. And so they had to kind of guess why the family dynamics changed and how they could really help. They were just kind of out of the loop because it was like parents didn't want to burden them. But by not talking about it, in a lot of ways, they said it made it worse for them because they didn't feel part of the team and they wanted to be part of the team. In a bigger fashion.
0: Yeah, I can. I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm not surprised by the uh, number of people that uh, raised their hands. I think that also does speak to, I'm sure, the sort of openness culture that you created during your visits there. Um, but you're right; it absolutely is sort of a uh, shadow, uh, a shadow underneath our society that so many people are providing this care. Uh, and I think the challenging thing with Uh, Young people specifically, um, and in this context, I'm specifically talking about um, teens and individuals in their early 20s who are providing care and who often at times are primary caregivers, um, is that they do have to set aside their career trajectory or they have to, uh, you know, take extra absence from school. Um, And there aren't necessarily set up structures to account for this, uh, especially in the job market. You know, one of the biggest traditional red flags is, oh, you haven't been employed for the last three years. Like, tell me about that. Um, But that is if you get to that question even and you're not already pre-screened where your resume is thrown out because of the um, gap in years. So. Uh, I I do think it's something that we do need to uh, speak about more openly in terms of the reality that people are going through. And I think the challenging thing about discussing caregiving uh, around dementia or any other chronic condition is the people who are providing the care and who are doing this challenging task uh, really don't always have time to, uh, and, and rightfully so, have time to both be doing that challenging task and be advocating for it as well. Um, And so it's really the responsibility of those of us who, uh, you know, like yourself, um, who've been through this and are taking on a larger role in speaking out loudly for this, um, and those of us who um, understand what challenge this is and may not even be personally affected, but but understand the ramifications of uh, this societal underpinning.
2: Yeah, you know, the other thing that was really interesting, too, in the schools was Uh, and, And this would come up in our conversation was there's no support for us. And they're like, we have groups for this and we have groups for that and we have groups for this, but there's not a group for us where we can get support. But then some of them spoke up and said, but we can't really stay for a group either. We have to get home, you know, to take care of whoever. And so it was just it was it was really eye opening and it was really sad at the same time. And, and yet their insights were so powerful in terms of family dynamics and you know how this disease is even hidden from family members in terms of uh, total truth and honesty, in terms of trying to protect somebody from maybe what they, they foresee as the burden of the disease, but not looking at some of the positive benefits of helping somebody out as well and you know, that, that compassion and that empathy, I mean, those are huge life lessons to be learned that will stay with you forever as well. So, um, you know, the dynamics of this disease, I, I think, are just really unfolding. And the more we have the conversation, the more stuff, you know, we will learn about um, as we go through this. How do you, you know, pull youth in? How do you get them excited about stepping into this space?
0: Yeah, I, I think you bring up, you know, several good points there. Uh, I think the key thing to understand is, like you said, there are already so many youth who are experiencing this um, in, in terms of their, their care role or in terms of having a family member that is, uh, that is affected. Uh, but there isn't really a channel for them to, uh, to make a difference without having to uh, go out of the way and create an amazing radio talk show, for example. Um, but, you know, have a more uh, low-effort way of making a difference. And so that's really the space that we're trying to create. Uh, The way we try to get youth excited is uh, we really just share with them the reality of what this disease presents um, from a public health perspective. I think the people that are primarily affected in their families already have a really good understanding of the emotional toll and the financial toll that this has. But when you explain to people, you know, this is – the most expensive disease uh, uh, in our country, and the number of people who are going to have this disease is going to double uh, in the next 10 to 15 years, and we don't have a good public health plan for what we're going to do when those costs reach those levels, um, that is quite scary. You cannot vaccinate yourself out of dementia. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so it does take a uh, strategic planning at the uh, national level uh, and a, a big part of that is is addressing the the workforce needs of older adults. And that's really what our logo is, which is it's a uh, population graph. And so um, it is a Y with population graph, which is what America's population graph is headed towards. Uh, and we've highlighted this sort of small section around youth. And uh, the reality is there's less and less kids being born. There's less and less um, individuals who would have, in previous generations, been taking the uh, economic role or the caregiving role or whatever it may be. And there's more and more people who are going to be needing caregiving uh, as a uh, a secondary to them reaching this geriatric population. So uh, I think once you pose the fact that this is a huge public health challenge and you uh, express the fact that this is a Uh, an issue at that level Uh, students want to be challenging big issues and I think uh, that's the beauty of of our generation and realizing we do have a lot of issues to solve and this is uh, no less than any of the other ones. Yeah
2: and like you said there's so many different things coming into play you know in terms of just families as a whole, you know, where they live are more spread out than what they were back in the day, you know, so people could gather around. And, and families are more splintered, too. They they don't function as a team as much as they used to um, back in the day. Um, you know, it, it it is really quite amazing. And then just changing the face of who can get this disease. I mean, those numbers are dropping in terms of, you know, this isn't just an old person at the end of their life disease anymore. And I think that that has had a huge impact on people, too. I've interviewed many people um, in their 50s, 40s, and even 30s, you know, that have been diagnosed and, and a couple of parents with children. So there's so much to learn from a re- research standpoint on what even causes you know the different types of dementias and um and then you know being able to support that as a community um kind of like we have with cancer and heart disease and and all those other things that we're not getting the funding and um and we're not getting you know, we're, we're we're still, I think, grappling at, at being inclusive from different cultures to different ages um, all together. So, uh, you know, kudos, you know, for you and your group for what you're doing. Let's talk a little bit about the importance of, of respite care. What kind of feedback are you, are you getting, you know, from your members in terms of what is needed for themselves and for their families?
0: Yeah, that's a that's a really important topic, uh, especially I think for uh caregivers who uh currently might be listening. Uh so we know the numbers around caregiving uh as of, as of today are quite broad. I mean for the approximately people who have dementia. There's somewhere around uh uh sixteen to eighteen million family caregivers and 40% of them are been diagnosed with depression because caregiving is not an easy task. And so uh, we're essentially having more people who are uh, suffering from dep- depression uh, because they're taking care of someone with dementia than people with dementia. And a, a big part of us addressing that is through uh, opportunities to alleviate the burden of uh, caregiving. And so I think One important area around that is respite care, or otherwise known as simply taking a break, uh, but that can have quite profound uh, implications for someone providing care uh, 24-7 around the clock to uh, simply uh, have a breather. And so, I think the challenge we have in uh, implementing broader-scale respite care uh, is a couple-fold. One is that a lot of caregivers don't identify as caregivers. Uh, I think they. Um, this is just like the role that you know, culturally or in their family, they're expected to play when someone is ill, and and fair, you know, that's fair enough. Uh, but I think they still, you know, are providing that care, and they still do deserve a break, and they they should recognize themselves um, as you know caregivers. Um, and, and then the second part of it is that oftentimes accessing respite care is not very straightforward and it can be very expensive. And so uh, this is where I think you have a big opportunity to play a role um, is by providing that respite care in a volunteer fashion. Um, And so uh, I I do think as we are able to uh, better uh, educate caregivers on the importance of taking a break, not feeling guilty for having to take a break because there are limitations to the human capacity and if they're not taking care of themselves they can't take care of their loved one um, and as we get more young people to understand the uh, implications of respite care I think this is a big opportunity uh, for us to uh, address this from a public health perspective as we await uh, cures and uh, and therapeutics down the pipeline.
2: Oh I so agree and You know, that message is still, in my opinion, under-delivered, that we have to take care of the caregivers and the care partners, the care companions out there. Um, You know, we need those people healthy uh, to support their loved ones. And, you know, the way things are going, you know, especially since COVID, we're seeing a lot of communities um, close down. I mean, I know here in Minnesota, we have very, very few adult days that are even open anymore. Um, they haven't yes, come back right. and, you that's, know, we're hearing, oh, go ahead.
0: I mean, across, sorry, no, I was just going to say that that's in cities across the country. I've, I've heard that in San Francisco, LA um, in Boston. So I, I've, I've heard, I think that's a trend we're seeing across the country.
2: Yeah. And then we're also seeing, you know, communities close from nursing homes to assisted livings to memory care, uh, you know, that can't staff and, and, uh, you know, it's just too difficult. So, uh, we've got to do something better, and we've got to be able to train um, not only our families, um, but we we have to be able to support them in different fashions as well. And it's just absolutely critical. Um, can you tell us, you know, what is your your vision for youth care? What does that look like? Yeah, absolutely. So
0: what we what we did uh, to you know, partner students with this opportunity to provide rest time is when we first started our organization at UCLA, we partnered with a physician, uh, Dr. Zaldi Tan, uh, whose brainchild was this program called Time Out at UCLA. And it's absolutely brilliant model. Uh, Essentially, we train students to Uh, work with early to mid-stage individuals who have dementia. Um, We give them the tools to communicate with them appropriately, and then we partner them based on similar career interests and hobbies. And so uh, for three hours twice a week, uh, they would meet in this uh, community setting, um, and that would allow uh, the family caregivers that time off. Uh, And what we found is in our first quarter of implementing this, Uh, we partnered about 20 students with 20 older adults, and we found that uh, the family caregivers felt that six hours a week, uh, 75% of them said that was a four out of five or a five out of five reduction in their weekly stress levels. Um, Wow. So uh, I think there is a huge opportunity for this sort of short-term respite care market, so to speak, Um, but, but the opportunity, in my opinion, largely lies within uh, swaths of volunteerism uh, because the students who we we partnered with we try to like I mentioned partner on similar interests and hobbies and so oftentimes this was like a mentor mentee pairing. Uh, we had one student uh, I remember uh, who was uh, interested. He he was pre med at that time and he was interested um, in you know in research and he was partnered with one of the uh, founding or one of the discoverers on the research team for some of the implications of estrogen. And so, uh, they're just chatting about science, you know, for six hours a week. Um, I was personal when, when I did the program myself, um, I was partnered with, um, a Navy veteran and we both, uh, we both loved the Beatles. And so we would uh, spend time listening to the Beatles and talking about his Navy stories. Um, and so I, I think when, the, the the beauty of working with the older adult population as a student uh, is that it gives you tremendous life perspective very quickly. I think mm-hmm. when you are able to reshape the timeline of your life into looking more at lifespans rather than, oh, what's my next job opportunity? What's my next career thing? You know, what am I doing this year? And recognizing that we have an entire lifetime to be working on the things we find meaningful, uh, I think it allows us to slow down and make space for uh, efforts that support our community. Um, So I I think the vision around youth care uh, would ultimately be to um, have uh, several universities around the country be training these students on how to work with older adults uh, who have dementia and creating a large volunteer pool that would be able to provide this respite care now the last aspect around this is that it not only reduces uh stress levels um, for caregivers social isolation rates for older adults with dementia um, and it it, it also increases interest in areas of aging so we we also reported that in our research that students who underwent this, were better able to visualize themselves um, in pursuing uh, careers in aging. And I will say the the thing that I find from this as, a, as someone who's interested in public health is uh, I think there is more research needed behind this, but I would love to see how we can continue to implement better care earlier in the stages of the disease um, and essentially offset the time of people needing to enter assisted living facilities and especially nursing homes, that is the brunt of the cost of uh, this disease in terms of its effect on our healthcare system. And so if we can, you know, scale this sort of model of volunteer respite care to 1% of the people who have dementia today and uh, offset that entry into assisted living facilities or nursing homes by two months, that saved the healthcare system a billion dollars, um, and so I think there is huge potential to uh, address the high levels of cost around this disease while we are awaiting uh, these therapeutics simply through large levels of volunteer respite care.
2: Oh, well, I agree. Um, I agree with you a hundred percent. I think in order to do that, you know, my perspective is is again we have to really focus on decreasing the stigma the stress and the fear wrapped in this disease you know because people people aren't talking about it you know they're not coming forward to get help and many of them don't think the help is out there and I think part of the reason is um help isn't easy to find and you know for most people they go to the doctor and they're not given resources um you know, they're lucky if they get the Alzheimer's Association, and that's about it. Um, other than a few, and I would really say a handful of clinics around our country, but this is a common problem all around the world. And until we're able to connect people to, you know, peers and, and resources and, and, and start approaching this disease with hope instead of fear, I, I think we're going to have a really difficult time moving the needle. Um, and, and I don't know if you agree with, with my assessment on that or not, so feel free to to chime in there.
0: I, I absolutely agree with your assessment there. I, I think we are still at a very early stage of, uh, of bringing this disease out from behind the curtain. I think it, it, it as compared to some of its counterpart diseases in terms of prevalence, uh, it is very much uh, in the shadows. It's very much tucked away behind uh facilities that segment older adults from the rest of the community uh it's very much a hush hush topic still in several cultures uh and i I don't think we get to uh some of these these large scale health changes until we uh until we address and educate uh about the about the disease itself so you're absolutely right
2: yeah, and I think when it comes to education, and I would love your your perception on this. I'm I'm kind of a grassroots baby. That's kind of my motive. I, I just get in there and talk with people and ask what they need and and try to provide that. Um, but I know when I got when I stepped into this role, I had no desire to be here at all. But I was told by others you have to because you have hope and you're you're coming at this from a different angle. And so I really I listened to that and decided to switch careers. But what I what I really try to do, and I think, I, I think that we've improved on this, but I, I still think we have a long ways to go, and I call it emotional-based training. Um, you know, we can give people all the statistics in the world, which is typically just going to scare them <laughs> that the boogeyman is coming to get them or somebody in their family, but it doesn't really say – what's out there to support them. It doesn't really tell them how they can still live well with this disease. It doesn't, it doesn't always humanize. So I think sometimes when we're educating and, and I've probably flipped the needle the whole other way. I rarely even throw out a statistic um, because I think storytelling is so powerful. I think hearing about people's real lives and how are they adapting? Because what we do, all of our life is adapting. And when disease hits, you're still adapting, but yet we've shut down and we're, we're not sharing how we're doing that. And and that's, to me, you know, that's the gut of survival is, is adapting. And that's the critical mass, you know, to, to get people in that comfort zone to say, you know, I tried this and, and even if it didn't work, still share it. You know, because that's how we learn. It's not about failure. It's about trying. I mean, we should be embarrassed that we're not trying harder, that we're not doing more, Um, and get rid of that word failure. Because I think think we have built society in this um, era of perfection, and you can't launch anything until it's perfect. Well, my belief is, and again, I'd love to hear your ideas on this, I don't think we're serving if we're not fluid. I don't think we're serving if we're rigid and saying, my way is the right way, you know, my way, you know, is the only way. We need to be listening to people, and we need to be adapting our programs, because the group of people that we're serving changes, and they may not have the same needs as who we were, and And I think that that's one of those big cracks in the sidewalk that we're falling through on.
0: What are your thoughts? Yeah, I I, I agree. I think uh, the, the power of storytelling uh, definitely far surpasses, uh, I think, the statistics. Uh, and I think it does speak uh, – I think it does explain also uh, one of the reasons why, you know, your show is so powerful um, in terms of you actually talking directly to uh, people who are um, experiencing this and having – and elevating their stories. Uh, when, we, when we have, um, you know, student retreats, uh, we do try to, uh, we've tried to bring, you know, caregivers to share their story. Uh, you know, we try to, uh, watch really empowering films like Alive Inside or Still Alice. Um, and, and I think, you know, having these narratives, uh, around, uh, the opportunities that still exist even once you're diagnosed, um, or your family member is diagnosed is absolutely critical. Um, and and to your point of, of of needing to rethink our give on quote-unquote failure. Uh, I I, I agree. I think we're never anytime with something that is as much of a societal challenge as this disease presents, um, if at any point we feel like uh, we've reached the final product, we were probably wrong, um, and we do need to continue to keep an open mind. Uh, And I think that applies as much on the Caregiving side of this disease, as it applies in the science of this disease, so uh, still, still a lot to learn and a lot to adapt towards.
2: Yeah, and, and there's always twists and turns, and you know, there's that saying when you've met one person with dementia, you've met one, but that applies to care partners, that applies to environment, and just because it doesn't work today doesn't mean it's not going to work tomorrow. Um, you know, we have to give more than one one crack at a thing too, and uh, to me, it's really about helping people build a toolkit because, uh, and, and again, this is my opinion, but that there's not one voice out there that has all the answers, nor should there be. You know, it's, it's about coming together and sharing stories and inspiring one another on what is possible. And I hear so many people say, well, you know, I, 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 no, I'm not a nurse or I'm not a doctor or I'm not a social worker, so I really can't do that. And I'm like, but you're a human being that cares and has compassion there's a lot you can do you know more people would would rather have a friend at their side than a doctor or social worker you know that's you know focusing on a disease they want to be recognized as a human and that doesn't change if you uh you know if you have an illness or if you're caring for a loved one or you know or if that's your business of caring you you that human connection i think draws people um into making a difference um, in the work that they choose. And in healthcare, I think that's a, a, a big, big thing that in a lot of ways has gotten lost um, because there's been a couple of creepoids that say, you, you know, that have crossed the line and you can't give a hug now because of that, or you can't take a picture because of that. And, and, you know, we, we, we've, we've lost some of the, the great goodness in the process, sometimes I think of overprotecting as well. And then people shut down that creative bubble and it's the creative bubble that's gotten us to the moon and that's cured diseases. And, and you know, we don't have the luxury of, of popping that bubble. You know, we gotta, we gotta keep going and, um, and expand and pull more people into the loop with their creative ideas and, and support them. Um, you know, to check it out. I I just think that that's so critical. Um, What are some of your biggest takeaways and and lessons learned um, since you've launched the movement?
0: I think um, one of the things to kind of speak to what you were just talking about there is how many people um, and how many students are interested in this who, uh, A, don't have a personal connection to the disease, um, and, two, uh, don't have a – traditionally health-oriented career efforts uh, or career interests. Um, so in, in, terms of, uh, in terms of at least our first couple of years, we uh, kept tabs on some of these numbers. Uh, we found that about 50% of students that were joining the movement were had no personal connection to the disease. Um, and we also saw that uh, about thirty percent of students had no interest in any health related fields, whether that be nursing, medicine, et cetera. And this was a really exciting finding for me because it meant that uh, we are not you know, necessarily changing people's minds about their careers, but if you want to go into law, maybe you're now thinking about elder law and you know and you know affecting, Uh, and protecting individuals from elder abuse. If you're going into the tech space, maybe you're thinking about gerotechnology and how to make uh, traditional technology age-friendly. And so I I think absolutely we need more creative ideas in this space, and the most creative ideas are not necessarily limited uh, to the individuals who we traditionally think of as being a part of the efforts to address the cure and the care.
2: I, I love those statistics. I, I think that is fascinating. Um, and I think it's wonderful because, you know, sometimes when we, you know, and I'll take myself, for example, you know, you're all in and all you can see is, is your world and what's going on. And we need those outside eyes that can maybe look bigger and larger and clearer and, you know, help expand what is possible. Because I think sometimes when we're in the thick of things, um, you know, we we just get our mindset of right or wrong, and this, you know, this is what has to happen. And, you know, when you're so exhausted, too, um, creativity goes down, and, and sometimes I think our our ability to follow up as thoroughly as we'd like. Um, so I, I think it's wonderful, and to me, it shows the... Um, Compassion and and really mission driven, um, mission driven generation to really make a difference, and um, I I think it's just fabulous. So thank you for for sharing those stats. That's really 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 cool. What what's next for your organization? You have any big plans on on the chart here?
0: So we're our goal right now in the last since COVID it's been uh, challenging for us to really implement some of our caregiving efforts. Um, So we've made a few efforts to pivot our caregiving model. We'd initially tried it um, in person. Uh, We finally got the appropriate liability coverage to send people uh, directly into individuals homes, which is where I think most of the care that is provided is done. And so uh, as we After we trained our first cohort of individuals uh, to uh, provide this sort of in-home respite care, uh, that's when we started having lockdowns for COVID. And so we really had to completely shift our focus into uh, more so the advocacy side and really uh, focusing on getting students to to be aware of this uh, disease and to – Essentially, raise awareness within their local communities uh, and provide education. Uh, but I think down the road, uh, we we do have uh, more of an interest in uh, addressing brain health. Uh, I think that's something that we be addressing from any age, uh, and really thinking about how do we reduce our risk for uh, for dementia. And I think there are some very simple things that everyone can be implementing in their day-to-day lives to reduce their personal risk of dementia. Um, a couple of things which we know for sure have uh, the highest impact in the prevention uh, space is uh, number one is uh, exercising regularly, uh, about 150 uh, minutes uh, per week of moderate intensity exercise significantly reduces your risk uh, of dementia. Uh, Addressing any vascular risk factors that you have. So uh, let's say you have hypertension or high cholesterol or high triglycerides, making sure you're getting that checked regularly with your primary care physician uh, and and keeping those in control. Uh, Having a Mediterranean diet, uh, which is uh, which is which has been shown to be uh, important in terms of being neuroprotective and improving cognition. Um, I, and finally, uh, the, the last one of these, uh, I think big four, uh, is getting better sleep. And I think uh, sleep quality and sleep time uh, on a regular basis is a critical factor to reducing your risk of dementia. And so I think that those are things that everyone can be doing. There's uh, very powerful research uh, to back the uh, these four. Uh, and there's several other factors also which can be done to reduce risk. But I think especially these four. Uh, are something that people at all age groups can be doing to address that. So I think the earlier that we start thinking about what's good for our brain and uh, looking at this from a preventative angle, uh, and like you said, education, uh, so educating even youth on what they can do, I think is critical to us um, addressing this as a society.
2: Oh, I I totally agree. And I loved when you talked about sleep. Not only is it, it it's, it's- time but it's the quality of sleep too and i think sometimes people go well you know i was in bed well that doesn't mean you were sleeping (laughs) you know or (laughs) how many times did you wake up you know during that 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 time um makes a makes a big big difference in the nutrition and the exercise and and i think the so you know keeping socially active i think is so important i i still think that's the number one factor that kept my mom going for 30 years with this disease was she she still felt connected and purposeful and uh you know her last three years not so much but the disease had progressed more needless to say by then but i i you know that's when i really saw the difference take hold in her when she couldn't communicate um as much uh with people and And uh, and so forth. Now, let's talk about, um, you know, the youth movement, you know, against Alzheimer's. Is this one organization? Do you have chapters? Is it just in the U.S.? Is it global? Why don't you give us a a little more background on that and how how people can reach out to you?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we are a uh, 501c3 non, uh, in that regard, we're one entity, but we have uh, 29 high school and college campus chapters, uh, and so, uh, if you are, if you know a student or if you're a student who's listening, uh, simply going to youthmovement.org uh, to go ahead and get a uh, chapter started, uh, and then in terms of if you have further interest in getting involved in what we're doing, getting youth involved in your community, uh, you can absolutely reach out to me and um, my email, which is just my first name, nihal n-i-h-a-l at the youth movement.org and i I think we do have a long way to go in terms of getting more youth involved and we need um, we need as much help as we can get
2: and people can donate from your page there too if they go to your website is that correct
0: absolutely and we will essentially use um, all of those funds uh, towards supporting increased advocacy efforts so towards getting more students involved uh, towards uh, towards creating better uh, avenues for brain health education, uh, those would be the primary areas in which the funds would be used.
2: Okay. And then um, as far as, um, you know, somebody wanting to start a chapter, is there a cost in doing that or, or not?
0: So there is a process to start a chapter, uh, but in terms of the actual chapter startup cost, uh it's free.
2: Okay. Okay. Wonderful. Well,
0: anything that we haven't covered,
2: I just love what you guys are doing. And, you know, kudos to all of you. You're really making a big difference today, but I can't even wait to see what happens from this movement 10 and 20 years down the road in terms of, you know, making those uh, those respite connections and changing people's thinking about what does care look like and how does that affect whatever business they're in and how to deliver services. I, I think that is going to be just um, a magnificent benefit that, um, like you said, probably isn't looked at at the forefront, but I think really needs to be. I, I just think that that is so... So important um, for for our service providers to have a little better understanding of in the trenches everyday living with this disease and i and I think you're you're building that out really nicely in that fashion but but anything that we haven't covered
0: uh and yeah, thank you for those kind words and we are absolutely uh you know just getting started in terms of uh, some of our aspirations of addressing uh, addressing this disease at a larger scale. Uh, I will say to uh, any of the, you know, caregivers that might be listening in, uh, you all are absolutely our, you know, primary motivation uh, around, this, uh, around this movement, and uh, we, we do want to uh, make sure you are seen for the challenging uh, and oftentimes uh, unseen work that you are doing um and and I and I appreciate uh, you having me on here, Lori.
2: Well, i like I said i I thank you so much for what you've started and continue to to work forward with. Um, I think this is just absolutely amazing, and I would love to see more schools um, step in and step up and get involved in this i I just think it is so gravely needed. Um, and I think you will get so much out by participating in this, too. You know, they always say you get more than you give, um, but you got you to gotta give it first. <laughs> and and um, I, I just think there's so many gifts wrapped in, you know, being an advocate or an activist in terms of really changing changing things for the next generation. Um, making things more comfortable and uh and then increasing everybody's knowledge uh just brings us together uh, is is my my true thought on that. So again, people can go to your website the youthmovement.org. Um you can again email uh at uh, info at the youthmovement.org or you can go right to nihal at um and, and again it's just nihal the youth movement uh.org uh, and then they are on facebook as the youth movement against alzheimer's and on instagram they are the youth and then movement is abbreviated mvmt um, same on twitter so uh, lots of different ways to be able to reach out and connect again, um listeners you know don't keep don't keep the details of this show to yourself. Spread the word you know somebody out here that needs this information, and it might be a youth, maybe it's a teacher or a principal you know or a dean of a college. Um, let them know this exists this this can answer and really work well um, threading together collaborations that are so badly needed and being able to raise voices and again, change our future for the better. So thank you everyone. Um, And again, Nihal, thank you so much for your time and energy and everybody within your organization. You're doing amazing work and don't for a second ever forget that. We, We appreciate all you're doing.
0: Thank you, Laurie. The, uh, the mutual, the respect is very much mutual, and appreciate what you're doing as well. So, uh, very, very glad to be on here.
2: Great. Well, take care, everybody. We will talk soon. Bye now.
1: Lucky Land Casino asking people, "What's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?" Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Haha, in my dentist's office.
0: That's ChumbaCasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. BDW proof. were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.